Good morning, church. The scripture reading for today is from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, New Life family. Such an honor and a privilege to be able to stand, stand before you once again and open the word of the Lord and just put the beauties of Jesus on display. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you that you've gathered us together again yet one more Sunday morning to worship you. And we thank you that we have the promise from your word that whenever we are gathered together, that you're present among us to speak to us, to bless us. We pray that you give us hearts to hear and believe and fully receive and rest on the gospel as we see it proclaimed. Give us the faith to understand and believe and let it transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were to ask me to describe what my life was like before the age of 20, I'd have to say that in many ways I was lost. I was uh, aimless, misdirected. I was wandering through life without much of a sense of purpose or direction. And all that changed for me on October 31st, 2012, when this beautiful woman, dressed in white, walked down the aisle and stood next to me and looked me in the eye and promised to love me, whether in sickness or health, plenty or want, smiles or sorrow. And in her promise to me, I saw a vision of a future that said my past would not have the final say on what my future would look like. And when we encounter the nation of Israel in our text, we, we, we find a nation that in many ways is lost, is misguided, is aimless. They're wandering throughout this world without much of a sense of purpose or direction. The, the occasion that brings the prophet Joel to prophesy is actually a, a locust plague, a, a national crisis. From what we can gather in the earlier sections of the book of Joel, there seems to have been an invasion, an infestation of these locusts, locusts that have filled the land and have completely eaten up the crops, all of the wine, the grain, the oil, the things that Israel depended on for their economic livelihood. And just to give you an idea of how terrifying the situation must have been, in February 2020, this is three years ago, right at the start of the pandemic, in Kenya, a massive locust storm swarm invaded, wiping out miles upon miles of vegetation. While the locusts were swarming, kids were not able to go to school. And these things can be massive, these swarms. Uh, from what I read, they could be as big as 250 football fields 
including up to 125 million insects. Think about the, the sound of hundreds of millions of wings flapping, and it's terrifying. And at first, families would go outside and try to stop the locusts themselves by yelling at them and scaring them away, which obviously wasn't really effective. And it was so terrifying that even sometime after the swarm had passed, parents were being woken up to the screams of their children having nightmares that another swarm had come. And what becomes clear from Joel's prophecy to the nation of Israel is that these locusts weren't just some random natural disaster. No, these locusts were a clear sign of God's displeasure, his judgment against Israel for being disobedient, unfaithful, and unloyal to the covenant that God made with them when he rescued them from the land of Egypt many years ago. When God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. You see, God had rescued his people Israel from the oppressive regime of Pharaoh in Egypt, where they were forced to be slaves working under harsh, cruel conditions. And as he miraculously brought them through the Red Sea, where he created a path in the water so that they walked through safely. He then closed the sea behind them so that it put an end to Pharaoh and his troops who followed in close pursuit, bent on keeping Israel as their slaves. And then through his servant Moses, who led them through the wilderness, they, they arrived to Mount Sinai, where God met with them, and there was darkness, clouds, smoke, lightning, loud rumbles of thunder from the Lord's voice as he spoke. And there he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And he said, everything that you hear today, everything that I command you, you are to do. And Israel responded, all that you've commanded, we will do. And in this way... God brought Israel into a covenant relationship. To give you an idea of what a covenant relationship is, let's consider the idea of marriage. In a marriage, a husband and a wife join together and say, I will be loyal to you. I will be faithful to you. I will stick with you through sickness and in health, plenty and in want, smiles and sorrow. And in, in this way, God promised to stick with Israel as a faithful husband, sticks to a wife. Israel broke this, commandment, this covenant by continually chasing after foreign gods, false gods, leaving the one true God who loved them, who saved them. So as a sign of God's displeasure for Israel's unfaithfulness, he sends them this plague of locusts. But yet he's not through with Israel yet. He shows them mercy. He offers them mercy. He calls them to have a worship ceremony, much like the one that we're gathered for today, where they would come and confess their sins. Please to God for his mercy, looking for him to forgive them. And God promises his people that if they would obey his call to repent. In verse 25, right before our passage begins, he tells them, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. But he doesn't just promise them this this blessing to restore their, these natural expressions of his love toward them, although those were important. He goes beyond to the, to the natural, to spiritual blessings, blessings that are priceless, invaluable, on which you can't put a price tag. God's promise to Israel, if they would but listen to his call to repent, is a future. He promises this nation that they will have a future if they would re repent. 
And in this promise, he gives them a glimpse of a future, a bright future, in which it would be very clear that their past, their sin, would not have the final say on what their future would look like. God's promise, his will, his love, that's what will have the final say on their future. And we're going to look at this promise. We'll look at it in two parts. Part one is the promise of God's spirit. And part two is the promise of God's salvation. So let's first look at this promise of God's spirit. We see this promise in verses 28 and 29, where God promises that he will pour out his spirit on all types of people, on sons and daughters, on young men and old men, on male servants and female servants. And what exactly is God promising here? Well, one, notice that he says he's going to pour out his spirit. He doesn't simply say that he's going to give his spirit. He doesn't say he's going to sprinkle it. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. This word pour is meant to carry feelings of abundance. That God's not going to be stingy with his spirit. In fact, he's going to lavish his people with his spirit. And not just a few, but every single member of his covenant people. And this was very significant for Israel because up to this point in their history, God's spirit was only really identified with three roles in the nation of Israel. Those roles were prophet, priest, and king. But in this promise, God is opening up the work of the spirit to every group within Israel. The men, the women, the older, the younger, and even down to the lowliest of groups, the servants. He's saying everyone is going to experience my spirit. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all. There will be no boundaries that stop my spirit from reaching people based upon gender, class, or social standing. But to get an even more clear vision and understanding of what God is promising here in Joel 2, we'd be most helped by looking forward in the Bible, going all the way to the New Testament, to Acts 2. And what's happening in Acts 2? Well, the book of Acts begins by telling us that after Jesus died and resurrected, before he ascended into heaven, he met with his disciples multiple times, and he gave them clear instructions. He said, wait, wait for me in Jerusalem. Wait until you receive power from on high. And the disciples, they obeyed Jesus' command, and they were waiting in an upper room praying. When one day there was a sound of a, of a strong rushing of wind and what seemed to be like tongues of fire resting on the heads of all of the church, everyone who was gathered. And these people began to proclaim the marvelous works of God, but not in their native tongue. It, it, it just so happened that this was a big Jewish festival known as Pentecost. And there were Jews from all over the world gathered in one place on this day in Jerusalem. And when they hear these people proclaiming the, the, word, the work that God had done in resurrecting Jesus just days before, but in various languages, knowing that these people who were proclaiming had no special training. There was no way that they would have known these languages. They're like, hold up, what's, what's going on here? How are they proclaiming the mighty works of God in our languages? There's only one plausible solution. They're drunk. They, they've gotten a hold of some good wine early in the day, and this is just what happens. But Peter stops them, and he's like, hold on, let me bring you up to speed. Let me... Explain to you what's going on here. 
You remember what the prophet Joel prophesied long ago, that God will pour out his spirit on our sons and daughters, on our young men, on our old men, on our male slaves and women slaves. Well, that promise is being fulfilled among you right now, today. Joel's prophecy was about the final days of God's grand story of redemption. Peter tells them what you're seeing and hearing today testifies to the fact that we're living in those final days. Now, if you're like me, you might hear this story in Acts and say, man, that's crazy. That's, that's amazing. These people speaking these languages that they couldn't have learned or, or practiced before. But what about that is prophecy? I mean, if you're like me, you might think, when, when you think of prophecy, you might think of more so fortune telling, being able to predict, predict the future or to share a secret with someone that only they could have known and the only way you became privy to it was through some supernatural help. Those are the types of things that I think of when I think of prophecy. But not, I don't, I don't think that's what Joel had in mind when he promised that God would pour out his spirit on all of his people. And they would prophesy. You see, for the ancient Israelites, they knew and they understood that in order for someone to prophesy, they needed to be invited and brought into God's heavenly council, his divine royal court. They needed to be specially chosen by God and called by God into his divine court and given a word and sent to prophesy to his people. Think about the story of Isaiah 6. There's this incredible story where the prophet Isaiah, he has this vision of him being present in God's heavenly courtroom. And he sees this, this majestic vision of God sitting on his throne and these crazy looking angelic creatures flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah's vision ends with him being commissioned to go and carry a message to the people of God. So this is the type of thing that Israel thought about when they thought about prophecy. This is the concept that they had in their mind. So when, when Joel tells us that God is going to pour out his spirit in the last days and all of his people are going to prophesy. This is what Israel has in mind. This is what he wants us to have in mind. And Peter, when he looks at what God is doing on that Pentecost day, when Peter sees that God has poured out his spirit on all of his church in Jerusalem, it seems clear to him that just as God will call prophets into his heavenly royal court and send them off with a message to proclaim to his people. God was doing the same thing when he poured out his spirit on this church in Jerusalem. But instead of bringing them up into his holy court, instead of bringing them up into his heavenly royal court, on that day, God brought his royal court down to them and pouring his spirit out on them. And he was giving them a message, a message to proclaim. And that message was the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the gospel message that brings salvation to all who trust in Christ. God was giving them the message to proclaim that the gates of heaven are open wide. The doors of salvation have been flung open for all to enter, to run through, through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in him and him alone for salvation. Not looking to ourselves, not looking to our wealth, not looking to anything that we can muster up on this earth. In Christ, in Christ alone is salvation. But this promise of God's spirit wasn't just fulfilled 
for this one group in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But it was also fulfilled for me and for you, everyone who's gathered here this morning. Think back to the moment when you realized, if you've had this experience of, of realizing that you've put your faith in Christ. Think back to that moment when you realized something changed. Something was new. That the gospel of Jesus had penetrated your heart. That you no longer were the person you once were. Think back to the moment where you realized that you put your faith in Christ and had turned from a life of sin to eternal life in Jesus. And maybe it's hard for you to identify a specific moment. Maybe you've been believing as long as you can remember. But what you may not realize is what happened in that moment when you first put your faith in Christ, that you received God's spirit. He poured his spirit out on you and filled you with his spirit. Just like he did for those church members gathered in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He brought his royal court down to you. And he gave you a word, a word of hope, a word of love, a word of life. God proclaimed to you, you're mine. I've claimed you as my own. I've bought you through the sacrifice of my son, Jesus. And I promise to love you in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in smiles and in sorrow, in life and in death. Brothers and sisters, no matter how old you are, no matter where you stand in the social pecking order of life, man, woman, boy, girl, young, old, rich, poor, if your faith is in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are his and the truth of his gospel dwells in your heart and on your lips for you to proclaim it to yourself every morning when you look at yourselves in the mirror and for you to share it with everyone in your life. And if that's, if that's true for you, if it's true for you that God's Holy Spirit dwells in you and fills you this morning, then how could it also be true that your past would have the final say on what your future would look like? There's no way. The same spirit that dwells in you is the same spirit that was there in the beginning when God brought all of this creation from the barren emptiness and darkness in Genesis 1. The same spirit that lives in you this morning, that fills you, is the same spirit that came and empowered a, a young Jewish virgin girl 2,000 years ago to bring the Son of God into this world. If the spirit of God dwells in you, that same spirit that resurrected Christ, though he was dead in the grave for three days, how is it possible that your past, your sin, could have the final say on what your future would look like? It doesn't. God's spirit does. This is the same spirit that is poured upon you and fills you this day. So I'm here to proclaim by that same spirit that no matter what your past has looked like, no matter how many days or years that you feel that you've wasted, no matter how many years have been marked by your own sin or failure, no matter how many months of year or years that you feel that this pandemic stole from you and ate up, 
Your past does not have the final say on your future. God's spirit does. And if God has made good on this promise to pour out his spirit on you, then you can be sure that without a doubt, without a doubt, God will make good on his promise to bring you into the full experience of your salvation. Which brings us to our second and final point, the promise of God's salvation. And we see this promise mainly in verses 30 to 32. Verses 30 and 31 tell us that this salvation that God promises will be accompanied by wonders, miracles, signs. Joel specifically says that these wonders will include darkness, blood, fire, and smoke. That sounds kind of grim and horrifying. (laughs) But let's look into what exactly is meant by these signs and wonders. And just as for the first part of this promise, the promise of God's spirit, we were helped by going ahead and, and looking forward to Acts 2. We will be helped by looking back into an earlier part of the Bible in the book of Exodus to understand what God means by these signs. As I mentioned earlier, in, in the Exodus, God rescued, rescued his people from the oppression that they experienced in, in Egypt. And when God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go, he didn't send Moses empty-handed thinking that he would be able to eloquently persuade and, and talk Pharaoh into, into letting his people go. No, but God empowered Moses to perform miracles, wonders, signs. And these miracles were supposed to communicate to Pharaoh that if he didn't do as he was told, God was going to bring judgment on him and the whole land of Egypt. But at the same time, these signs were meant to communicate to Israel that their salvation had come. The day of liberation had arrived. These these signs, just as God mentioned blood in Joel 2, there was a sign of blood in the day of his liberation of his people from the land of Egypt. God had given Moses the power to strike the Nile River and turn the water into blood. And just as God promises that his final work of salvation will be accompanied by signs of darkness, when God sent Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, he told Moses to stretch out his hand. And for three days, there was a deep darkness that rested over the whole land of Egypt. And just as God promises that his final act of salvation in Joel will be accompanied by signs of fire and smoke, when God led his people through the Red Sea out of the land of Egypt, he led them by going in front of them in the form of a a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And Moses led God's people all the way to Mount Sinai where the Lord met with them and, and brought them into his covenant relationship. But that site, that location, where in God descends, lightning, thunder, a terrifying sight, fire and smoke from the Lord who is a consuming fire. So we see all of these four elements, darkness, blood, fire, and smoke, mentioned here in Joel, but also they were all present when God rescued his people from the land of Egypt. So this, this salvation that God promises here in Joel shares many signs in common with the salvation that he already brought about in Egypt. It seems like God is trying to tell his people, 
If you want to know exactly what this future salvation is going to look like, look back to that last great act that I did. And what was the nature of God's salvation in Egypt? Well, on one hand, it was a day of great terror and dread for the enemies of God, for the evil forces that oppressed God's people. Yet, on the other hand, it was a day of great joy, liberation, and salvation for the people of God. That day when God delivered his people by creating a highway in the Red Sea so that they could have safe passage, brought them much joy, liberation, and shouts of salvation. While at the same time, when he closed the Red Sea and turned it into a grave for the Egyptian troops that followed in hot pursuit, it became a day of terror and dread for those who were against God and his people. So we conclude, we can conclude from these similarities that at this final salvation that Joel is prophesying, it will be of the same nature. It will be a day of great terror and dread for the enemy forces, the evil forces that are against God and his people. Yet it will be a day of great joy, liberation, salvation, and justice for the people of God. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming. A day when God will bring his people into the full and final expression of his salvation. Where he will put a complete end to all of our enemies, the evil forces that oppress us in this life. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more Satan. There will be no more death. This will no longer be a world that hates God and hates his people. In that day, God's people will no longer know oppression. They will no longer know slavery. They will no longer know violence, darkness, and despair. And how can we know for sure that this day is coming and that it will be a day of, of joy and liberation for God's people while a day of dread and terror for the evil forces that plague us? Well, we can be sure of this because the dawn of that day happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to this earth. And his son came performing wonders, miracles, signs. But the greatest miracle that Jesus performed was when he had his arms stretched out on that cross. And there was blood. Blood of the only son of God, the righteous son of God. Blood that was shed for you and me, for all of our sins. And as Jesus hung on that cross, arms outstretched, just as Moses stretched his arms and brought down darkness, as Jesus hung with his arms outstretched, the sun literally went black. There was darkness in the middle of the day. And Jesus died and was buried and yet rose again three days later to make it crystal clear that the sin of God's people would not have the final say on what our future would look like. God's salvation would. And to make sure that we got this message loud and clear, after Jesus resurrected and ascended, he poured out his spirit on that first Pentecost Sunday. And when he poured out his spirit, there was a holy fire resting on all of his people. And he didn't just pour out his spirit on them. 
but he poured it out on you and on me. And all of these miracles are, are meant to tell us something. All of these signs that accompanied salvation that Jesus has brought. Think, think about, you guys are all familiar with Batman, right? We've all watched the shows or, or seen the movies. How do we know that Batman is on the way? What's the sign that we see? It's a bad signal. There we go. There's a bad signal in the sky. And for all the evil forces of Gotham City, when they saw this sign, it communicated to them that their doom was sealed. But yet to those who were perishing, those who were being oppressed, it communicated that their salvation had come. In the same way, all of these signs indicate to us that our salvation is near. Jesus is coming. And in these signs, they also indicate that all the evil forces, the sin, the death, Satan, that plague us in this world, they have an expiration date. Their end comes soon. So brothers and sisters, all, that, all that's left to ask is, what's the appropriate way for us to respond to this great salvation, this great act of God pouring out his spirit? What's the proper response? Well, we don't have to guess because verse 32 tells us that the only proper response is to call on the name of the Lord. Our only proper response is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, whether it's our first time or a thousandth. As Paul says in, in Romans 10, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead in our hearts and we confess it with our mouths, we shall be saved And we can be sure that if we call on the name of the Lord, he will answer in love and grace and mercy. We won't get a busy signal. I mean, do we even get those nowadays? <laughs> but we can know for sure that he will answer our call in love, grace, and mercy. Because the end of verse 32 tells us that there's salvation for everyone that the Lord calls. First, it says that there's salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord. Then it says there will be those who are saved whom the Lord calls. And what I think is happening here is, is relating God's call for us to our call to him. And the way that relationship works is our call on God, our call on the name of the Lord Jesus is a reflex to the call that he's already placed on us. Whenever we call on him, it's only a response because he's called on us first. We call him because he first called us. We love him only because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, you can call on Jesus' name in confidence, knowing that he will save you. He's mighty to save, even in the depths of darkness and utter despair. Because Jesus is our Savior, whose sun went dark so that we would see the light of the sun. And not only that, but Jesus is our beautiful Savior, who is coming, and when he comes, he's going to be dressed in white. And he's already promised that he's going to love us, sickness and in sorrow, in plenty and in want, in life and in death. This Jesus calls you today to call on him in return, knowing that his promise, his word, never fails. That's what has the final say on your future. Jesus' is spirit, Jesus' is salvation. Let's pray.
God, we thank you so much that you're so good to us. You're so patient. You're so gracious. That you overflow in love and grace and mercy and kindness. We thank you for the promise and the gift of your spirit. The promise that's already been fulfilled. That's true for us today and evermore. And we thank you for the promise of your salvation. Salvation that we already enjoy through faith in Jesus. But yet we know in many ways we still wait for the full expression of that salvation. There's still sin that plagues us. There's still death. There's still Satan. And we long for the day where Jesus will come and bring the full expression of that salvation. As we wait, Lord, let us call on your name, knowing that you will answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.